Hello, and welcome to the EIC Scaling Club podcast, where we share interesting insights from leading European deep tech entrepreneurs, investors, and industry experts. You've come to the right place. Now sit back and enjoy the podcast. Hello, everyone, and thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, my name is Robin Walters, and I'm a technology journalist specialized in Europe's innovation ecosystems. As the founder of TechEU, I'm delighted to work with a number of partners on EIC Scaling Club, uh, which is a new initiative that aims to play a super active role in connecting Europe's leading deep tech scale-ups, investors, but also other stakeholders in order to grow the ecosystem to the benefit of everyone. Uh, with that context in mind, I'm quite delighted to be joined today by this for this podcast by the co-founder and CEO of a super interesting deep tech company that was born in the CEE region, in Bulgaria more specifically. Uh, please welcome Svilen Rangelov. He's the co-founder and CEO of Dronamics, uh, which is billed as the world's first cargo drone airline. A big warm welcome, Svilen. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about Dronamics and what you're building over there? Thank you, Robin, and thanks for having me. Yes, uh, <clears throat> Dronamics is um, a company that builds new type of aircraft that are specifically customized for cargo. They are unmanned and we operate them as a service to customers like freight forwarders or Fortune 500 companies. The, what, the, the challenge that we solve is uh, that we, by creating a smaller building block of um, air cargo, we can actually accelerate uh, air cargo. We can do same day delivery over very long distances happen. In practicality, we can cover all of Europe with, uh, within 12 hours or less for five euros or less per kilo. Fantastic. How did this come about? Like, when was it started and what was the reasoning behind it? What was the idea? Yeah, so we're not the first to try to make a drone. Um, in fact, <clears throat> the inspiration came from when we saw the Amazon drones um, being unveiled. It's now 10 years uh, ago. Uh, and we, we thought, okay, these are great last mile vehicles, but what about those, the step before that, the middle mile? What about connecting cities that are far away? Uh, being brought up in Bulgaria, we were always cognizant that, yes, we're part of Europe, but we're far away from the main centers of the um, international commerce. So we, we had that chip on the shoulder and we wanted to solve that by, uh, you know, making the world a smaller place with aviation. Fantastic. And uh, you're now almost 10 years into the journey, but it's quite a it's been quite a big year for you, 2023, because you had your first uh, commercial flight test, I think, uh, a couple of months ago. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, we flew. Um, we had our maiden flight uh, earlier this year, um, and uh, we also a year ago we also achieved our license. So we're the first one and remain the only ones to have uh, such a large drone that's for cargo uh, that's licensed to operate under the new EU drone rules, and that's quite exciting. So we're um, we're very proud that the, yeah, that Europe is actually taking the lead in this. Um, and uh, yeah, so it's been a big year for us. We also just received our um, <clears throat> IATA codes and ICAO codes, so any airline uh, has those, and it helps them integrate into the global aviation system. Um, so, so customers can um, send their cargo on our airplanes just the, the same exact way in their systems that they would send it on a Lufthansa or other flight. So it's been a big year for us. Yeah. yeah, it sounds like the beginning of the next chapter for you guys. Yeah, yeah, it's an inflection point for sure. 
Fantastic. Um, now, is there anything specific to Bulgaria that makes you very fit to build this kind of company in terms of the talent that you have there? Or I don't know, aviation knowledge or, or specific engineering talent? Yeah, so yes and no. Uh, <clears throat> back in you know, 1910, 1912, in that period, for two years, Bulgaria became made a few worlds first. So we had the first female military pilot right, in the world. We uh, constructed the first uh, airport uh, in the world. We had the first, um, you, you know, successful landing with a failed engine. Before that, any every every time the pilot, you know, dies in a crash and so on. So they don't live to tell the tale of what went wrong and so on. So you know, by being the first one who actually successfully landed after his engine failed mid-flight. Um, this is a huge advance in aviation. So, so Bulgaria, and, and at the time, remember, there was no internet, right? Well, not remember, we weren't there, but imagine there was no internet. There was, um, so, so it was just a few years after the Wright brothers um, did the first uh, flight at Kitty Hawk. And, and for this knowledge to compound and to propagate to the other side of the world, and to for, to for people to kind of accumulate on top of it, it's quite transformational. So Bulgaria, before uh, from then until the 1950s, had a you know really thriving um, aerospace industry. We had three factories; they built a thousand aircraft, forty different models were developed, and so on. But once you know after Second World War, we were on the wrong side of the Iron Curtain. Um, <clears throat> the factories got shut down, um, and so on. So for 70 years, nobody in Bulgaria. Um, did that, and in, in fact, we we were stuck in a place where, okay, all the aviation talent that's studying and so on, they, they either work in maintenance jobs at the local airport, or they they just simply go abroad. So we went um, sort of uh, against the mainstream by basing ourselves here because we knew it would take a long time to um, to to develop the aircraft, and therefore we would um, really want to be in a place where we can we can do uh, some prototyping in a very efficient uh, and quick way but Great. it was not it was not intuitive if you were to draw back like a venn diagram of customers talent pool supply chain and investors for aerospace company bulgaria barely touches any of these four circles thankfully it's not like that anymore we now have more than 100 people working here out of our sofia office doing all kinds of things from r d manufacturing uh, business side and so on. Uh, so we kind of wield it into uh, existence. Yeah. And if you if you sort of look at the company now, the, almost 10 years in, um, or about 10 years in, how, how much of it is, you know, driven by the science and engineering behind it? And how much of it is sort of doing business and, and research and partnerships and whatnot? And, and of course, that's going to shift now. But uh, what, what's it been like the first 10 years? Well, <clears throat> we have quite a few innovations, so it, it looks quite um, conventional to the untrained eye, you know, fixed-wing aircraft. But there's um, a whole lot of design decisions that we took, knowing that we're unburdened by the fact that there's no, um, you know, for 100 years people designed aircraft to have humans on board, and we did not have that requirement. So we, um, but we were always, um, you know, focused on the mission that it needs to be relevant for the market. In fact, not just the market. We wanted to build, you know, the the the, the lowest common denominator, the most mass market vehicle possible in this class. So that, what if what if a person in a village uh, in a very remote area in a developing country can use right 
and still be connected to the main centers of commerce over long distances uh, where there's no infrastructure and so on. So we really need to make something very robust, uh, very, um, you know, able to withstand a number of conditions and, and so on. So we're not building, um, I don't know, a, a Rolls Royce or a Bentley, but we're building actually like a Volkswagen Golf, <laughs> if I may say. Yeah, no shame in that. Uh, and and this what you're describing would just would be described now as a as a deep tech company. Now it's a relatively new term, and everyone sort of gives their own definition to it. Um, do you consider yourselves to be a deep tech company, and what does the term mean to you? Yeah, well, I'm I'm happy that this has sort of emerged because when we started, the, the term didn't exist. Uh, in my mind, it's a company. As the name suggests, there's a lot more in, underneath the surface. So, hearts, are, you cannot just say we're the Uber of X, right? So, a deep tech definition in my mind is something that doesn't fit well into a 30 second elevator pitch. It takes time to for people to grasp the different complexities. Um, it, in my mind, it tends to be more hardware, but because I'm biased, we exist in the atoms uh, rather than bits uh, space. Um, and yeah, it's uh, what it's like. It's like you have to um, you have to learn that the iteration time and the feedback loop will be longer. Um, so therefore, you have to be more selective about the types of experiments that you run in, during those iterations. Um, especially since you know the first six or seven years we had done on accumulative investment size of around 3 million euros, right? And they didn't come 3 million from day one. We started with 25K <laughs> back in 2014. So we had to really, really be mindful that, um, and we, we can't just use the typical um, aerospace things just because we couldn't afford them. So we had to kind of reinvent a lot of things along the way. We had to construct our own oven, right? because we couldn't afford an oven. We had to construct our own everything, learn to be carpenters. Well, there's a lot of supporting stuff that we just didn't have access to. So you're, you're, um, you're building the whole ecosystem yourself, at least in our case. And has that slowed you down or do you think you needed those challenges to sort of be, get to the place that you are now? Well, what gave us air cover was the lack of regulations. Uh, because, again, we were not the only ones who had that idea. We were not the first ones to have such an idea, but we're the only ones left standing, at least for the only ones who are that much in the game, right? And um, and by by being super uh, super constrained from a cash point meant that, okay, it, it actually was a good fit for what we were trying to solve. In cargo, the customers don't want to pay. Like Jeff Bezos was teaching the world for 30 years that shipping should be free. It cannot be free. You're moving, you're spending energy to move atoms, right? But so then if it's not free, it should be as, as cheap as possible. Well, therefore, your system needs to be um, as, you know, as low cost as possible, uh, both to construct and operate. In fact, that's why we called it the Black Swan, because, you know, it's why. We, uh, we like the story of how Black Swan is something that everything, everyone thinks that cannot exist, but it actually does. To remind us that we're not building just a new type of airplane that's unmanned. We're not sticking an autopilot on a Cessna that has been done 10, 15 years ago. What we're doing is doing a new product that needs to be cheaper than the, the existing products. And that's extremely difficult to do with technology. So being so constrained in funding and uh, doing, yes, it took more time. But even if it took less time, 
we would not have been uh, able to commercialize because the regulations didn't work. So we actually, just at the time when the regulations in Europe opened, we were kind of ready to, um, to, 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 to converge on them. And honestly, their confirmation of all the different decisions and bets we made, because we had no idea how these regulations come about, uh, but it seems like they align perfectly with our crawl, walk, run approach in design thing. Like don't go after huge, uh, you know, new propulsion systems, new battery, hydrogen, supersonic, hypersonic things. Like don't add too much new things. Start with something that's close to reality certification and so on, and then upgrade. And, and, and these regulations, they reward that. And as a consequence, they, and also they are very um, driven by existing aviation rules, which means that because back then we, we didn't know and we assumed it would be certified like a regular airplane, we designed for those uh, requirements. And the, those are the same exact requirements that actually the rules demand. So we actually were able to foresee this. Um, you know, we're lucky that it played out this way, but also, um, yeah, we're, we're happy that it did. Yeah, it sounds like you made a couple of uh, clever decisions uh, given the time, time constraints, uh, but also got the timing right, which, of course, is not, not always a given. Um, so you mentioned cash and funding uh, at some point uh, uh, in your answer. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about that. Um, I think it was in November uh, 22 uh, when you announced that you, you've been awarded a grant, a 2.5 million euro grant. Uh, by the European Commission under the EIC or European Innovation Council uh, Accelerator Program. Um, now, can you tell us a little bit more about how that came about? Did you already know the EIC? How did you uh, become aware of the program in the first place? And how did you manage to secure the grant? Yeah, so um, the, the way we understand the EIC was that it is the <clears throat> the the what previously used to be the Horizon 2020 program which also had, you know, grants for deep tech uh, projects that are from TRL 6 uh, above uh, and, and get, could get funded up to 2.5 million euros. At the time, Horizon 2020 only focused on grants. Now there's blended finance, and we are actually also the recipients of the blended um, one. So we have also an equity commitment from the EIC towards our next round, which is quite uh, important and quite, quite great. Um, but... Uh, yeah, I think that application was number five. <laughs> if you count all the times we applied during Horizon 2020, I th I'm very happy at, again, how the EAC uh, pivoted into um, this new framework because the old one, I think, was skewed a lot more towards, um, you know, it's just another funding program for lab research uh, where I'm sure there must be other paths through the university systems and so on to, to do that. But if you can name a unicorn or a company that we use in our daily lives that originated with the Horizon 2020 grant, I'll be surprised. I think the EIC took a lot more realistic approach. It's like, okay, we care about the technology and we're not afraid of the complexity. So hence we'll go after deep tech, but we care about it being relevant for the market. And, and the whole process, the way they streamlined it, I liked it a lot better too, because of, it's a lot um, more converging towards what you would go with a typical venture capitalist. So it's a lot more market-based. And, 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 and yeah, I think uh, that kind of, because of our history of you know, private funding uh, and going through the motions of pitching and uh, preparing materials, data rooms and so on, we were 
actually quite well prepared also for that pivot of the AC when it happened. And then um, the AC were very happy that it recognized, um, you know, our traction. Of course, when we also applied back in during the Horizon 2020 programs, we were at the mature stage. So um, I'm not saying that it was necessarily the structure of the program. It was definitely also a fit for us at the stage. Um, but um, yeah, I think they did a lot of things right when they when they changed the model into the EIC. And the best thing from my point of view, personal point of view as a European taxpayer, I love the fact that now there's an equity component because I, you, you very well know how companies, especially in um, deep tech, they require a lot of capital and after a certain round size, you just have to go to the US. I'm happy that that's not the case anymore. And this is a huge step in that direction and the EU taxpayer and future pensioners will get to benefit from the upside that all these future unicorns will develop. Yeah, fantastic answer. Um, I didn't know this was your fifth application, actually. So that's uh, that's always good to know. Um, and, and you're right. Of course, the IC was sort of born out of the, the old Horizon uh, 2020. Now Horizon Europe um, is sort of the umbrella uh, for the EIC. But it also, it, it's relatively early days for the program itself. So so I'm guessing it also had to grapple with some uh, growing pains. Uh, so so what for you was uh, were some of the things that the EIC or the EIC accelerator in particular can improve upon? Well, we could always wish that it took less time, right, um, to to decide. But again, I, I'm not sure. I haven't looked into the numbers. Uh, you, you know very well a venture fund, a single venture fund, how they have a pipeline of let's say single digit thousands of you know inbound or or, or deals that they review on an annual basis, and um, and they they get to end up making like. 10, 20 investment decisions uh, with a very small team. I think I, I'm sure there's thousands of applicants at uh, every stage. And I think it's, you know, if a venture fund can move fast, so can, you know, the AC. But at the same time, it's, again, order of magnitude faster than Horizon 2020 process was, in, in my view. Um, so, so it's, uh, yeah, it, it, it's definitely been going in the right direction. So, once they get the better hang of it, and I'm sure it will be faster, more streamlined, and uh, and future founders will only benefit from from that flywheel. Great. Uh, and aside from the money, uh, the grant that you've received, but also the equity commitment, um, has the EIC played a role in, in, for example, connecting you to potential co-investors or other actors in the ecosystem that that you feel were important in the journey? Yeah. In fact, it's been quite hands-on. We just had a visit from. Uh, one of their uh, representatives, um, you know, who happened to be in town. Um, we also speak at a lot of um, events. We've had quite an engagement. We get introductions from um, for both investors, potential customers, and so on. So it's definitely a lot of value. It's not just a, you know, okay, here's a grant, call us <laughs> if there's something. Um, they're, they're very proactive, and I really like that. Great to hear. Um, now, aside from what the uh, European Commission and the EIC is doing for, you know, stimulating deep tech entrepreneurship in Europe, what more can we do, uh, do you think, from your vantage point uh, to sort of encourage people to think more long term, uh, to tackle more and bigger problems uh, and to, in general, be more ambitious in their endeavors? Yeah, no, I think, um, well, so a couple of things. I think on one hand, um, I'm sure you noticed the narrative violation, how the EU was actually the first one to 
to implement drone regulations uh, from around the world. In fact, uh, these drone regulations have been worked on by 63 countries since 2007, and the EU played a big part in them, and they were the first to implement. But there's, you know, 40 countries that also sat on those committees and haven't yet implemented it. They will, because they're very familiar, and also the EU's, you know, lead is quite important. The ASA is um, one of the best, if not the best regulator um, in that. So, um, so, so, so you, you, I, I really don't like when Typically in media, you know, uh, p people have that impression that the EU is slow, bureaucratic, and so on. Because I have the evidence, the receipts to show that it actually is a leader, and regulation can actually be an enabler for business. But where I think there could be um, things to improve um, are Bulgaria's ecosystem kind of started, and we're the beneficiaries of that when the EIF uh, did a. Did a, did a wild bet back then. So back then, in I think 2010, 2012, it had a program where typically they would, you know, um, where they would guarantee bank loans to, S loans to SME. So I think there was some folks in the government of Bulgaria that persuaded the EIF that let's carve out 20% of that package and give it to two, you know, privately managed, like professionally managed accelerators. So it's 100% EIF money. Those two accelerators, 11 and Launcher, which I know you know very well, they essentially ended up investing in 200 plus companies in the local market that kickstarted the whole ecosystem. So while this wasn't the typical approach of the EU and the institutions back then, they, they saw an opportunity to test something and it turned into right now we have more than a dozen funds just in Bulgaria, like a very like six million people country, right, in the EU. So I think the EU should just keep doing kind of like bets out of the ordinary like that. One obvious low-hanging fruit to me would be, okay, um, a huge source of venture funding in the US uh, has been, you know, the pension funds. Um, I think there should be more like encouragement uh, because to for pension funds to also participate in um, in VC, so there's more capital available and so on. So again, when you need to go raise 50 million, you don't have to uh, talk to only overseas VCs. You get to um, keep that technology here in Europe and and, and so on. So I think there's uh, th there's a lot that could be done there with relatively low effort. Um, and ultimately, you know, I, I'm not sure how we feel about it, but I feel like my generation, the retirement age, will be like 80 or 85, right? Mm -hmm. The math has kind of long stopped working. So I do think it's kind of like a must that the sooner. Um, these funds get access to higher yield uh, investment opportunities, um, the better, right? And so, yeah, so I think that could be an easy bet to place and test the waters and then uh, roll it out bigger. But that's just, again, my personal view, not... Um, I'm sure there's a lot of folks thinking... Uh, along those lines as well. Yeah, but I think a lot of people would agree with you. Let's just hope that it's not going to take a generation or maybe even two generations uh, before we get to that point uh, here in Europe. Um, okay, but that's maybe yeah. a topic for another day. Um, just to go back for, to the deep tech uh, prowess that we have here in Europe, because there's this notion which is rooted in reality is that Europe has a lot of talent you know, scientific talent, academic talent, research talent, research talent. Uh, we prove it. We have the just the sheer numbers of people that are involved in this uh, research and innovation field, it's there. Uh, but there's still this notion that it's very difficult to get that talent and research uh, 
to come to the commercial market and actually make it to to the market in, in the form of a startup or a scale up or a unicorn uh, eventually. Um, what do you think uh, can we do to improve that and to, to close that gap? Well, um, aside from I more capital, which you've already touched on, yeah, more cap, yeah, exactly. So, um, other than that, I think a little more time and more success stories, right? Uh, you, and you see this, uh, so, so okay, in, in Bulgaria, if you're a young person who's motivated to work hard, you have an, just a handful of choices of what, where to apply yourself. You could either work for like a big multinational, but those big multinationals are typically, you know, not the heart of the, HQ is not in Eastern Europe, typically, right? It's somewhere out there. So you could be the, the local GM or whatever, which is great. And so on, but there's only so many of these. Um, so, and then there's a lot of other like it's very fraction um, it, it, fragmented um, economy, right? So, so I think that's part of why the startup ecosystem has thrived with so little capital and so little encouragement. It's been had an outsized impact here, but just because it's not necessarily uh, great for job security to have a regular job. If you know what I mean? There's not that many you know, wonderful job opportunities to begin with. Whereas I can definitely see how, you know, if you're in Germany or France or, or somewhere else, you have a whole long list of, you know, companies where you get to spend 20 years working for them and so on and get the gold watch uh, and, and all that. And that's viable and that's a great path. But people aren't necessarily encouraged to realize that, okay, you only have one life and then don't you want to get like maximum value? And yes, there's more to work than just money or an outsized return, but um, there's a lot of more impactful things um, to be to be done. So I think once the flywheel starts going and people see, aha, I, I started with my peer group and I'm still in a corporate job, but this person I know actually went, did a startup, cashed out big on some uh, stock options and now has much better cars or, you know, is farther ahead than I am, even though I did everything right, everything that I was told, you know, by the old system that I should do right. And then people will start connecting the dots and, you know, being a little more risk on. But I think, yeah, the appetite for risk in Europe, definitely not where it should be, given all the confidence, right? Because a risk is only frightening um, if you're not confident in what you're doing. If you're confident, then you can get a better assessment of what that risk career-wise is for you. And so Europe having the world's largest number of PhDs and you know terminal degrees and so on, and yet only 2% of um, unicorn participation and so on, that's a huge disconnect in how risk is perceived or how, um, and, and, and so on. And I think it will just take a little more time, a little, uh, a few more years of great exits, um, great times. So, um, yeah, great outcomes, not just for yeah. founders, but also for key employees with the stock option pools and, and so on. Yeah, and their investors, of course. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Success breeds success. So the more success, success stories we have in Europe, the more uh, we will have in addition. Uh, I agree with that. Uh, but on that note, who is your role model and what's your favorite deep tech company in Europe for that matter? Well, my role models are... Um, Folks actually like the the founder of uh, Zara, the founder of IKEA, 
the founder of Walmart. I, I, I like, uh, you, you know, obviously Henry Ford um, and so on. Folks who have found technological way to create a huge competitive advantage either by, you know, changing the way things are done um, on the supply chain or logistics side. Um, and, and by doing that, they actually give a much wider amount of people uh, the ability to lift their quality of light of life, right? So that's been those are the folks that I really admire and look up to. I think it's much less work to create something super shiny, super niche. You know, the the most expensive car, the most expensive watch, the most expensive. I mean, price is what a function of demand, but figure out how to make it you know, the best one at the very low price point, that's really, really difficult, yeah? And, but not only is that difficult, but also is the most rewarding because everyone gets to wear a watch, everyone gets to have a car, everyone gets to have access to all these things that can meaningfully change your life and the life of your children and so on. So, I don't know, that's the chip on the shoulder we get from being raised in the post-communist Bulgaria where, you know, there were uh, empty shelves and hyperinflation and so on. Like, we all went through that, like millions of people. But um, yeah, that's kind of like always been the more interesting part to me. Not the niche luxury thing, but the mass market um, thing that changes the world. Yeah, I see what you mean. Like de demo democratizing access to technology in a meaningful and, and, and a scale uh, in a scaled way, right? Um, uh, but what about European deep tech? Is there any company aside from Dronamics that you really look up to and admire for the things that they're doing? Well, um, I really like ISAR for what they're doing, right? Um, it's, it is rocket science, <laughs> what they're really doing. Um, I, I like, you know, OneWeb. I, I like the fact that um, there are those really ambitious people who are not really giving up and saying, ah, we're too late. We're too late to send rockets into space. We're too late to have a constellation of satellites to enable super low-cost broadband and so on. That people still mean, you know, there are pockets of people that still have this outsized level of ambition. And uh, yeah, so really happy to see that. I'm sure there's more, um, but uh, those are the first two that come up, come to mind. Fantastic. Uh, we're going to wrap up the conversation, but I uh, had one question left about sort of this narrative that you talked about earlier um, for European tech. When you go to the US to talk to you know, either investors or potential partners, customers. Um, what what do you think their their view on Europe is when, when it comes to their you know the ability to innovate here? Well, <laughs> the unfiltered view for most uh, is Europe is for vacation, <laughs> uh, and it's just I'm, I studied in the US. I like the US a lot. I have many friends there, and um, and so so I. I I can see how a lot of folks can be fully happy with just owning the American market because it in itself, in so many industries, it is, for intensive purposes, the global market for, for certain things. Um, I do wish m more of them uh, would be happy to go on airplanes, you know, do more board meetings outside and so on, get the hang of the ecosystem, learn all these things that we're seeing firsthand uh, on, the, on the ground. Because... It is becoming more and more multipolar world. And while you know they were the only game in town 10, 20 years ago, it's no longer the case. Capital has become more and more commodity, even despite the downturn and so on. There's so much um, sitting on the sidelines uh, waiting to be deployed. 
um, and not just in Europe, like if you start going East, uh, Middle East, Asia, um, and, and so on, uh, it, there's, there's billions and billions of people that have yet to enjoy the, the, the fruits of this huge technological development. And there's going to be a lot of capital that funds this future growth. And it's not necessarily going to come from a single country and they need to accept that. So, um, yeah, it, I don't believe in winners take all, at least in the physical space uh, for, um, yeah. So, so it, it will be quite competitive and they need to know that a lot of great things are happening in Europe as well. Much agreed. And thank you so much for sharing that insight. That's a perfect ending note. Uh, Svilin, thank you so much for your time again and all the best with uh, Dronamics. Thank you. Thank you, Robin. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the EIC Scaling Club podcast. For more interesting insights on European deep tech, subscribe to our podcast, YouTube channel, and our newsletter on eicscalingclub.eu. See you. See you.